Welcome to the podcast New Work and Sustainability. My name is Nicole Helmerich. I accompany leaders and teams to connect and co-create meaningfully and to grow, bringing themselves and their business forward. I help organizations to transform in a sustainable and people-centered way. Let us think organization as a living system. In this podcast, we'll explore cutting-edge new work practices and sustainability practices for your organization, for your team, and for you as a leader. In this episode, today, we talk about colonial sustainability with Lavinia Mood. Hi, Lavinia. Hi, Nicole. Let me present our guest. Lavinia advocates for social and environmental justice. She has 15 years of proven experience in the world of ethically driven business, with a focus on apparel, footwear and solidarity agriculture. Prior to leading the sustainability activities of the German fashion brand Armed Angels, she researched in the field of child labor in global trade. She audited and consulted fashion brands and factories in Europe, Asia, and South America. Her passion is people. She believes in a decolonizing approach and, in her own words, just started to unlearn her own coloniality. Lavinia claims that colonial sustainability is not a theoretical subject, but a real lived one, which all of us who interact with sustainable development and the global south experience and fuel daily. Before we get started, let us first check in. Why? This helps us to get present and to get focused on what we'd like to do today. We do this check-in with three hashtags today. Try it out with your team. It's a wonderful way to start a meeting. My three hashtags today are hashtag new work and sustainability promoter, hashtag commitment and collaboration, hashtag favorite song, jarabe de palo, déjame vivir. Welcome, Lavinia Mood, to the show. What are your three hashtags today? Thanks again, dear Nicole. Uh, my three hashtags for today are hashtag right relationships, hashtag reparative justice, and hashtag triangle of sadness, a movie I watched recently and was pretty amazed by it. Thank you very much for your wonderful hashtags. Our topic today is colonial sustainability. And how does sustainability look like before we start with the colonial part? How does sustainability look like? And we do this in a supply chain of companies. Yeah, how does sustainability look like? I think we, we might align the current sustainability movement with colonial sustainability <laughs> already right from the start because at the end of the day the system in which the world operates is based on colonialism so also um, the environmental rights movement and the sustainability movement how we call it nowadays in 2023 is also pretty colonial or based on colonialism because um, at the end of the day it's a top-down approach right and it's led by pretty euro and western centric views we are the ones now trying to save the planet right and humanity so top down seems to be an important element um, 
dominated by by northern actors. That's also what I heard. What else comes up uh, for you when you think about the sustainability in in the supply chain of companies? How does it look like if if somebody wants to kind of learn a little bit um, the history of this? How did it develop over time, and how does it look like today in practical? Maybe we do it with the textile sector. Yeah, I think the textile sector is a pretty good example, well, of coloniality, of colonial systems, but also um, like showcasing the development and let's call it evolution of sustainability, because right now it's actually a very special moment in the sustainability landscape of the textile sector and the fashion industry, because after having been struggling with voluntary initiatives, which dominated basically the last 30 years of the sustainability movement. Now we reached a point where finally, 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 we've got some pretty solid, still to be criticized for being eventually not too strict enough, but pretty solid regulations and legislations on a global level coming up. Like um, over here in Germany, we've got the German supply chain law. Then on EU level, there's a new EU textiles strategy coming up with a clear roadmap on circularity gonna be new rules over here in europe with regard to greenwashing so we are slowly 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 changing the voluntary approach to yeah an approach where brands mostly western european brands actually have to take responsibility and report and um, publish like in a more or less transparent way how they do their due diligence in their supply chains and that's like i'm really looking forward to the next years and uh, what is going to happen to the sector That's actually very fantastic how how you entered into thinking about where do we come from in terms of what was out there in the past and, and what is out there now in terms of frameworks, in terms of legal, legal obligations. When I started out doing research in this area back in 2008, there was very little. There were some codes of conduct from companies. There were some standards that have been created um, that have done their like first steps of trying to build up something in the environmental and in also the labor standards area. But very little has been out there to actually do something from the headquarters all the way to, to the supplier. There has been some first projects out there, but there was much of the learning going on and mostly many companies were flying under the radar as a, as a mm. former colleague of mine also put it in a, in a wonderful article. And now flying under the radar is not an option anymore. So it, it is a responsibility that is now for all, for all companies, almost all. That's again for in terms of the legislation. We start with the larger companies, obviously. But also I think it's interesting to see where this textile sector, when we speak to it in terms of colonialism, comes from. And let me just give you the example for Central America. So when you think about where the textile sector started, that was in the 1980s. And that was right after the civil wars. And it was the United States that has been promoting for the textile sector to develop in Central America and to be built up in export processing zones where not all of the rights would be fulfilled for workers and mostly also 
inspectors had a hard time back then to to access that that compound. And so this is where we come from. This is where like it all started in in the textile sector to now nowadays where we have some more legal frameworks in place even though it's a patchwork still. But it's an interesting journey I find observing this and and following this as a as a researcher but also as a consultant for for many years now. How uh, is your impression in in terms of the journey also of the capacity building part of the sustainability? <sighs> yeah, I find this journey thing always a little problematic because we are always, always on a journey. And sometimes I'm like, okay, when do we, re- like, is there an actual destination to this sustainability <laughs> journey? Yeah, so where are we um, in this journey? Yeah, I don't know. I don't have a clear answer on that because I think our destination is not clear and or our destination is defined by very few people. Right now in the sustainability movement, we all know that we are all in this carbon tunnel vision, right? Defined by Dr. Jan Konietzko, I think. There was an image, a graphic circling the internet over the last two years. But I also do believe that there are major changes in terms of empowerment of workers. At least that's what I have been experiencing and uh, perceiving over the last one and a half years. I think that has to do something with the pandemic because like coming out of the pandemic, a lot of people in, in the global south and in the global north realized, well, that we live in a world built on a basically broken and unequal system. And somehow people are getting empowered and motivated to go on the streets and, um, not only ask, but um, fight for their rights. And that's, I mean, for eventually for you as well, the two of us coming from this labor rights working background. So basically, like, obviously, my political opinion is influenced by what I'm doing day to day, right? So I see almost everything in the world and every interdependence for me has to do something with labor. <laughs> And I really like to see um, the rise of, um, yeah, laborers fighting for their rights and um, asking for a just transition. And I think this has to do something with colonialism as well, like fighting against oppression and unjust systems. It's just that. There are many great issues that you have just opened up. And let me respond um, to one after another because they're, they're really inspiring here. The question to ask, where are we actually going? Um, and is this a, about a journey? Mm. But where are we actually going in terms of sustainability? I think is so important. It's important on the organizational mm. level to really ask us as an organization, as a CR department, as, as a leader, where are we actually going in terms of sustainability? Do we really know? And is this the right journey where we are heading to? I think that's... Yeah, and is it enough? isn't enough. Yeah, Sorry. definitely. That's also very important. <laughs> and does it clash with our business strategy? Does it clash with our KPIs? Is actually the sustainability journey that we want feasible with our strategic um, business approach that we have? Or does it stand in conflict with each other? That's also, I think, very important. And what mm. what you also said 
is where are we going towards and what is this about? And I think here I would like to say, right now we talk a lot about human rights due diligence. We talk a lot about risk analysis. We talk a lot about companies that do have to map accordingly and report. And are we talking about risks? So is this about risks for for companies to minimize? Or are we talking about human rights? So how do we frame what we talk about and what we mean? Because those are two two opposite and very different logics, right? If I if I talk totally. about something where I want to reduce risk, I don't put people first, I put the risk first, right? And if I talk about human rights, I put people first. So I think that's also something to think about when we think about those programs that we are setting up, when we think about capacity building that we might do, um, that could be very interesting also to ponder about. Can I add something? Yeah, and I like I also think I think we can bring this even to a like higher like meta level because we have I think we have to ask ourselves like the risk for whom? And I think there's not so much difference, although if we talk about like minimizing like business risks or like human rights, at the end of the day, what is happening right now and how the narrative around this is created, it's actually never about like the risk on the factory floor to be tackled first. It's about, at least from my experience working in companies and um, conducting risk assessments and so on and so forth, it's always about the business risk. It's about the risk of minimizing the amount of money on the account of the board or the CEO. <laughs> and that's why right now this human rights due diligence movement grows so big because I think the world has realized that sustainability and sustainability inc. is a business case. And that's why people are moving. I don't think that the intention is actually, unfortunately, actually to port, empower and rise up people. Just um, another critique from, <laughs> from, from my side. I don't know. Do you also see it like that? I mean, it depends yeah, who conducts. Okay. The risk assessment, exactly. What yes, it, it's it's. I see it. It's a bit. It's a bit. Um, yeah, depending on who who's conducting it with what. So, let's maybe think about it as two models. So, if we think about it as the compliance model, if we follow the compliance mm -hmm. model um, as a company, what we do is we put the obligation to fulfill environmental and labor rights standards onto the supplier. We put this into the contract. Mm -hmm. uh, we ask and we will audit whether this is actually the case. And we will do this audit in a way that we want to control and want to make sure that a supplier complies. If the supplier doesn't comply, if we find non-compliance, then we will ask the complier to remediate, we'll make a remediation plan, and we will put the responsibility onto the supplier financially as well as content-wise to do that. That's the compliance model. And Exactly. Who's we? Aha, organizations, companies. <laughs> um, so mm -hmm. this is mm -hmm. the compliance model that back in the 2000s, 
Richard Locke and others from research have already confirmed with large N data in the textile industry that this model is not working. It's failing and failing and failing yeah. all over again. When I did my dissertation back in 2008, I started it out looking at non-compliance cases, like alleged non-compliance cases, 132 that I could gather um, from the late 90s until 2012. And what I've seen there, and this we talk about the remediation part and how sustainable is if we remediate non-compliance, we could see that when there is when there was enough pressure, um, short-term remediation took place, specifically when it wasn't about freedom of association, but when it was about health and safety or other issues that were easier fixed. And then mm. once the remediation was through a couple of years back, those cases would pop up again. So the question is, if the compliance model doesn't work, there's another model that's on the table, which is the commitment model. So how do you commit as a, as a company uh, when you do business with a supplier in the global south? How could a commitment model look like? And for me, this would be in a way that it is about a partnership and that is a way about how to work out things differently. And this model, and if we integrate in this model the way we kind of do sustainability or human rights due diligence, this might be able to be a little bit more successful than the compliance model. What do you mean? Uh, that's really, really, really interesting. Like, what do you mean by like more successful? <laughs> like, like the results? Yeah. <laughs> for yeah. reporting or workers' rights or planetary boundaries. That's very nice that you kind of... <laughs> We're switching roles here. Yeah, I yes. like that. <laughs> no, you're asking those questions. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. So um, I think the commitment model can do good changes, not only for the Northern Company and not only for the supplier, but also for the workers at the supplier. Commitment means mm. I commit to a company, a supplier, to see what's not working and to see where I can help in order that it can work. So it's about changing um, work relations. It's about changing how we do business with each other. It's about changing how also supervisors work with workers. And we talk about specific capacity building projects. Again, This commitment is um, this commitment approach is embedded into the current structure we have, right? So therefore, I said this can be more successful because the current structure mm -hmm, has a specific mm -hmm, limitation mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Okay. Understood. Yeah, I like that approach, and it goes, I think, a little bit in line um, with what I have. Uh, studied and understood what uh, right relationships are and how we define business relationships uh, and partnerships. And I think we have to ask ourselves, because, you know, especially in the textile industry and in the sustainability um, world, when we talk about our downstream supply chains, we always talk about our partners. But I think we should definitely ask ourselves, Are they really our partners? <laughs> Because at the end of the day, you know, it's um, it's still this top-down approach. And uh, I'm not so sure if we are always uh, treating our supply chain 
well, the only term I know is partners, but I um, should be thinking about another term because I don't think it's <laughs> it's correct. If we are really like treating them on eye level, right? If we really have defined just business terms and negotiations um, because, yeah, the brand is delegating requirements uh, to the supplier. The supplier is delegating requirements to the workforce and then it goes down the supply chain, right? I think the commitment model model has its limitations in terms of when we have a system that is about efficiency, about squeezing, about getting the best price possible, and then we have a problem to really get there where we want to get because we still have a top-down, as you said. Mm. Let me walk one step further. So we've gone from the compliance model to the commitment model, and... Let me go a bit more uh, AWOL. Please. <laughs> I want to know more. <laughs> what if we think about this as, in terms of new work, as collaboration and co-creation? Because words do matter, okay? So yeah, if totally. we think about how do I make business as a Nozam company with a supplier, Assuming that you know the supplier, because if you have too many suppliers, it's just a number, you don't even know it. Yeah. Uh, let's assume you know your supplier, okay? For a moment, you know your supplier. And if you don't think about, I want to see whether he or she complies, I don't want to see whether there is commitment in place, but I want to see how I can collaborate and co-create in order to produce something valuable, which is textile. And in order mm -hmm. to be able to give a fair amount of money to the workers who are producing this. And I want to see how we can do this together. This also changes the way we think about top-down. Are we negating the power relationships here? No, we're not, because we're still in a specific system. We, we can't change the system the way it is right now. Well, if we wanted, we could, but for now we don't. Um, but this could also open up new venues of how we work together if we think about it as a co-creation or collaboration process. Yeah, totally. And also like how we, um, I think this also changes how we, how we define responsibility. I mean, it's also, and already in the term, like, well, first of all, commitment, you're actually committing <laughs> to something and then like co-creation and collaboration. And um, yeah, and that's actually, I think, the first step when it comes to, well, acknowledging that we are stuck in this colonial sustainability in Sustainability Inc., in like the corporate sustainability movement, and that we start listening <laughs> and not only delegating. I think this is, it's very um, basic, but this is, I think, um, the first step. And this is actually also like one of the very, very, like, I don't know many, many positive examples of positive outcomes, but I know of one example in Tamil Nadu, India. Yes. You know, the Tamil Nadu area in India, it's one of the textile hubs in the world when it comes to ready-made garments and especially jersey. And in Tamil Nadu, they had this huge issue uh, with the Sumangali system, yeah. which is a forced labor system where um, young girls and women, like, they receive a three-year contract, work at the factory, um, mostly spinning mills, live in hostels. They do get some 
a little money every month, but like a big amount of money they receive after three years. It's supposed to support unofficial dowry <laughs> and so on, so on and forth. And um, it was a um, it was a part of like socioeconomic structures in yeah. Tamil Nadu. That's why also like the critique from especially Western NGOs was, uh, well, had to be sensitive. But this is the only example I know because um, there was this problem and finally some kind of meaningful stakeholder management projects were initiated where finally, finally, and for me, this is the only case <laughs> I know where workers like actual workers, you know, from the factory floor participated, trade unions participated, local unions participated. And nowadays, officially, unofficially, obviously not yet, the Sumangali system is abolished, officially, I'm telling you. And it's really devastating because all of the other major challenges, excessive overtime, <laughs> living wage, gender-based violence, you know, all these topics we've been working on for so many years, uh, yeah, they are still there and very predominant. That's a very great example that you that you open up because you started by saying listening is so important. And I think mm. it was the case you just described was about listening, voice and participation. So it was about the inclusion of mm. the relevant stakeholders locally in order to make change possible. And I think that's Definitely, when we think about co-creation and collaboration, that's definitely the mode to go. There is an older example I can I have studied and I can and I can cite and have talked to the stakeholders that participated in it. It was in the 2000s in Central America from SA, Social Accountability International and others that was launched a project that's called Kim, Simco or Kimco, depending on how you pronounce it or mecca mark for the Spanish speakers. And this was about bringing all stakeholders. So we talk about the brands, we talk about the supply, the supplier management, we talk about the workers, we talk about trade unions with all of the problems that comes along in terms of trade unions, because in this area, we sometimes have some yellow trade unions, but that's another discussion. But everybody mm -hmm. sat everybody <laughs> sat on the same at the same table and was able to shape the content of this project and the phases of this project and the outcome of this project. And they were able to sit at the table and were able to voice their view. And at the end there was material that all of the stakeholders felt that it was useful and they could use and they would use for, for years after. So I think it is so important to listen, to participate and to include the stakeholders that really matters. Because if we talk about capacity building projects, and this goes to standard setters um, and it goes to companies, how often do you, do you see design capacity building projects in your headquarter without considering the local stakeholders where you want to bring it? Yeah, and then you talk about intersectionality <laughs> and giving the voiceless a voice. Everybody has a voice. We have to make space <laughs> for all voices. And yeah, and especially if we talk about workers' rights, and we are talking right now about mostly workers' rights, um, yes, we should listen to workers <laughs> because they are the ones affected. And I think all of that discussion goes along with 
uh, well, meaningful stakeholder engagement, and then also data and who owns yes. the data. I think we also see a lot of colonialism in uh, data management, you know, which organization conducts which study and who prepares the report and who owns the data. I think that is a huge problem. I think if we conduct workers' voices or surveys on discrimination and so on and so forth, data should be owned by the workers or at least shared with the workers. And that's not happening, you know. It stays with the companies and the companies are evaluating the data and then they set up innovative, supposed to be innovative projects, incorporating the workers again. <laughs> but um, yeah, it should be much more intersectional. Everything we do, everything we evaluate and everything we, we try to report should be intersectional. I don't know what you think about this. If we could fight the colonial, the colonial part in sustaining <laughs> or regenerating our planet and humanity. That's a big and, and, and great uh, reflection you've just made. And we're currently collecting promising solutions, right? You, so you started to talk about the partnership, about how we collect data, what kind of stakeholders we want to include, which is the mode of inclusion, how do we want to work together? And I think mm. also... How do we then share the results of that? That's what you also uh, alluded to. And a couple of years back, uh, we crossed paths when we worked on gender-based violence and harassment. We, and um, we discussed uh, this issue in a larger group with different organizations. And there was the question of how do you include this into audits? What to include? What better not to include into, into audits? And this is the very same point that you allude to when you say, how do workers know about the results of the data collection? And also, what do you actually ask and what is actually okay to ask? <laughs> so I think it's good to just check your systems when you have systems in place in terms of reporting, in terms of auditing. And what do you actually do? And think about it just for a moment. What kind of standards, what kind of ethical standards do you follow when you try to implement human rights and environmental standards in your supply chain? And I think by asking this very, very question, you can open up another reflection and another way also of thinking about that for, for companies and for organizations. But you asked me about intersectionality, and I think that's a big topic. Maybe we should leave it for, <laughs> yeah, for another, another episode <laughs> um, of sorts. Yeah. Um, what are other, <laughs> what are other uh, very important, <laughs> what are other <laughs> promising solutions that come to your mind when we think about how can companies, when they want to do some steps to move out of that colonial sustainability, do that? Yeah, first of all, I wish to say I love the fact that you're saying promising solutions and not best practices <laughs> or best solutions, because I think there's no, there's no real best practices if we talk about, yeah, uplifting workers and, um, you know, empowering workers on a global broad scale, right? Um, but I think, well, as we said before, the first step is, well, we should listen and then we realize, well, we, ha we have to accept like consciously our own coloniality. 
I hope <laughs> this is what is going to happen to almost everybody that we realize certain patterns, you know, in our personal life and in our business life. And uh, I think it starts with us and ourselves because, I mean, we are all um, socialized in the Western world, right? So it starts at home and it starts with us sitting alone eventually in our living room and thinking about, you know, the power dynamics and imbalances of the world. And then I think the next step is, uh, as you said before, like analyzing and re-learning um, and studying um, the systems and standards we are currently working with. And I think the main question uh, should always be, what is the intention of the standard or the system you're working with or you're in the process of implementing and whom does it serve? Is it a service to life or people or is it a service and or a system which is serving the corporate goal of the company? And in our case, if we talk about sustainability, some nice phrases and some nice graphics in the sustainability report or eventually a sustainability award. You know, there's so many sustainability awards <laughs> out there, meaningless uh, sustainability awards in my, in my belief. Yeah. So uh, like, again, like really, really, really um, the basics, right? Listening, reflecting our personal coloniality, and then reflecting on the coloniality of the business and the business system we are in and the companies uh, we work for. And then starting uh, to talk about it, I think, like we do it, right? I have been afraid for many years, I must admit, um, to open up this discussion and conversation. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's also thinking about starting to think about the takeaway, right? So um, I think... Adding on to what you just said in terms of promising solutions, when you look for a new standard, you can definitely go and compare standards. There's one uh, standards compass that, that I've been contributing to from the German government, which I think is very helpful to kind of see what are the different standards out there? What do they do? But it is not only the selection of the standard. It's also having this discussion within the standard, having this discussion with your auditors, if you even know them, if you have a third party auditing, uh, make sure to get to know them and to discuss those issues. Also, starting to discuss those issues with your suppliers. What are your auditing procedures and what do you really know when you use that survey? Is it really something helpful or is it not? Like check the stuff that you actually do and for whom it is geared to. Mm. And why do you do it? Yeah, why? And why do you <laughs> yeah. do it? And um, also I think um, thinking about what is your mode of co-creation and collaboration if you want to have one, if you wanted to have one, and what would this do to change things? And also one thing of the takeaway would be for me, if you want to think about rethink your role as a leader, if you're listening and you are now, you are in sustainability and you're a leader, go back and, and listen to the episode where we talk about sustainability, sustainability and regenerative leadership. It's episode three. 
if you want to reflect a little bit more about on oh, nice. what is what is your role what is your personal role in this what is my role what is my responsibility in this i think that that could be interesting um to go back and to listen to that episode anything else lavinia before we close Yeah, I just get uh, stuck on co-creation because, you know, this is also like a term which is uh, widely used right now. I'm also using it a lot, but like, I think if somebody would have asked me or would ask me, like, what do you mean by co-creation? I think I wouldn't have a proper answer to this because I think we never learned <laughs> how to co-create. Like, we do not learn it in school. We do not learn it in university. You know, we learn how to compete. We know how to uh, define rules. We know, uh, or we learn how to delegate. Um, we learn how to delegate in dynamic systems with different hierarchies, but I don't think we really learn how to co-create so this is also a, a personal journey of mine but i think it's important for the future if we want to start decolonizing sustainability in our world of work i think we have to practice how to co-create respectfully and what that means for communication and uh, disrupting existing power imbalances right well another topic <laughs> excellent uh, that's uh, has been a very rich reflection and maybe one last thought to add to this for my side would be co-creation there's many new work methods out there that help us shift our mindset and learn the tools for co-creation one of among this is liberating structures so come join the crowd and That was a very rich, rich, rich conversation. There's no way to summarize that here. So I'd say I'd uh, continue by saying if people like to know more about you and your work, where can they find you? Ah, Nicole, thank you so much for this co-creation uh, journey we just did with so many different topics. Thank you very, very much. So you can find me everywhere and nowhere, obviously on LinkedIn. I've also got a website and I want to add like one final information why I finally like took the courage and started talking about this huge topic because last year I did a course organized and facilitated by a collective of mostly women from the global south and um, the institute or collective is called Possible Futures and they've got a super like mind-blowing disruptive a super uncomfortable course which is called Intro to Decolonial Sustainability and this changed everything for me <laughs> and I'm actually doing the course again now the same course because I just started to understand so everybody who's interested in the topic go check out Possible Futures Wonderful, we also make sure to put those informations into the show notes and thank you very much Lavinia for being on the show today Thank you so much, Nicole. That was a pleasure. If you like what you heard, tell me about it and let's continue the conversation on LinkedIn. Come back next time and recommend the show to your colleagues and friends.